You're gonna dig this. The Fly Fidelity Podcast is the solution. It's the best. Check it out. You wanna get super fly, fly. Details just ahead. Do you love credible content, but, but, but hate how long you have to wait? And who wants super thick and frothy dumpster juice with rat corpses in it? There's a better way. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly. Fly. Fly Fidelity. Fidelity. Fly Fidelity Podcast. Fly Fidelity, baby. Fidelity, baby. Fidelity. With your host, Luke Bailey. content for incredible times this week we're celebrating the lasting legacy and impact of the wire hbo's groundbreaking crime show which this month turned 20 years old joining us for the occasion we had the immense pleasure of speaking to director ernest dickerson who directed six episodes of the show two of which notably being season finales we're also joined by special guests, all of which share their fondest and strongest memories of a defining moment in television, a series that would pave the way for a shift in the industry focus and a streaming revolution that would follow. Listen carefully. Yo, 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 this is Cam Thundy from Crate 808, celebrating 20 years of The Wire on Fly Fidelity. Now, as a cinephile, I did always treat the world of television with a bit more contempt than I should have, especially with the massive emergence of reality TV back in the noughties. But then The Corner and The Wire came in and changed my life and respect towards the medium of TV. My ideas of what this art form could achieve were blown to bits within just a few episodes of The Corner and the 
first season of The Wire, and to this day, I've still not got over Randy Wagstaff. Here was work art and craft that related to my love of hip-hop in that it showed me behind the curtain of how my world actually runs and works. The injustice, complexity, humour, heart and spectrum of shades of grey present in everyday life were portrayed immaculately. Inherently within The Wire are truly timeless themes, a reason I realise it still resonates with me today, issues that this chapter of human civilization had to deal with and probably will have to deal with for a long time ahead of us, but yet with all this breadth and depth and substance came an incredible level of entertainment and cast of characters that will last forever in the memory, so much so I still plan on calling my future pets Avon and Marlow. Now, does anybody remember watching The Wire and thinking, where the hell is the score and the music? Such a standout thing for me now. That kind of sample of subversion of the trope led to even more acts of breaking the mould throughout the show and at the highest level. It truly flipped the crime genre in ways I had not seen, often skipping moments I'd be conditioned to expect in other crime shows like car chases, shootouts, court scenes, but nothing was off limits to David Simon, his team of writers in the art of manipulation. And let's not forget the masterful writing. David Simon, Ed Burns, Richard Price, George Pelicanos, and many, many more may well be to blame for the word novelistic becoming such a cliche as the impact of the wire was felt. But yet this is what the show revels in being. As an example, I remember venturing into screenwriting at this time and being in a room full of writers for British TV like EastEnders and Coronation Street, and there'd be a running joke about how long does it take a group of writers to bring up the wire in the pub. It's exactly right. They can't stop talking about it. It's that commanding. And this commanding writing showed us that yes, all the pieces do matter and the show became the catalyst for forming my actual method of consuming television. Before The Wire, I had never read recaps or poured over audio commentaries or read every book on the subject, but here I was in my mid-twenties devouring just the show eight times within a few years. So, you know, the reruns were real and yes, it turned me into an awful person, but with a righteous quest of spewing the gospel of The Wire at every opportunity but I was just so scared of people not giving this show its due and hearing from its lessons and drawing the stuff I could draw from it because it was just so much better than anything else on there until of course Mad Men and Breaking Bad came around and then those of us who lived in that golden era will remember that golden Monday morning where you could at the start of every week you could watch New Wire, New Mad Men and Breaking Bad episodes. Now, I have lived through golden generations in art before, but I could truly bask in the glow of it at that time as I knew it was happening in real time this was breaking whatever had come before it. Now, I know we're not dropping many spoilers for people who still want out there and checking the show, but people do cite the key chess scene or Omar's courtroom scene as standout scenes, and rightly so, they are classic. But I'm just going to give a bit of a rundown here of my favourites that often go overlooked, but I'm going to just sum them up in a few sayings and the people who know will know, but these are just some of the standout moments. You going to look out for me? You looking out for me? Yes, Randy Wagstaff. The Chicken Nuggets conversation, and look what Michael B. Jordan went on to do, by the way. Snoop buys a nail gun. You didn't even wait to get the motherfucker in the house. Big up Chris Partlow out there as well. She Eddie Clay Davis scene. Fuck. 
Fuck. Fuck. Motherfucker. Bodie, realising the game is rigged, it makes me sick, motherfucker, how far we done fell. That scene hit hard. My name is my name. That was for Joe. Cold, cold scene. Chair recognise, which is just incredible to this day, like a 40 degree day. Now, I'm just going to leave you with those. Hopefully they sparked a few moments in you that you might want to go back there and watch The Wire again, or at least talk about The Wire again, and just really realise the impact it had. With all of this said, The Wire never got the glitz and glamour in the award shows, but the show was never about that. Instead, the streets will never forget the true impact and power of this television show and what TV can do 20 years on. So, rest in peace, Michael K. Williams, and long live The Wire. My name was on the street. And when we bounce from this shit here, I gonna go down in them corners, let them people know. Word did not get back to me. Let them know Marlo stepped to any motherfucker, Omar, Barksdale, whoever. My name is my name. Peace. My name is Dylan Green, also known as Cinema Sci. I'm a contributing editor over at Pitchfork and the host of the Real Notes podcast, here to celebrate 20 years of The Wire on Fly Fidelity. Man, what to say about The Wire that hasn't already been said? <laughs> um, I had never been to Baltimore the first time I saw The Wire because my parents were fans, and you know, you just kind of like even if you're not supposed to be watching it you just kind of catch the shit that your parents are watching like in the periphery at night you know <laughs> love y'all if you're listening but um the thing that really always stuck out to me about the wire is like the sense of place and the sense of space on that show is just so immaculate it's one of the first examples of a tv show i can remember where it didn't feel like i was watching a television show it felt like i was just watching real life that was captured by cameras you know like and it just so happened to get beamed into houses um i wasn't really watching it week to week and i kind of came back to it and binged it after it was all over and i've been meaning to go back again but like the entire team from the director to the writers to the camera people to the actors to everyone like they created this incredible sense of space that felt so real and so tangible you know and this is also my first exposure to so many different actors between you know michael b jordan and michael k williams and just like to have them be a part of something that felt so real like i could smell it i could taste it i could touch it you know like it really felt it felt like i could just reach through the screen and just see everything and feel everything the good the bad and the ugly um there aren't very many shows i can say that about but like that's everything to me and that to me 20 years later is kind of what the wire represents as a, as a tv show yo so what's shop Maria. why not because we got a red cat they say we have a new package tomorrow new package yeah yeah, man, this we got stepped on shit we got out here get these fiends agitated. Well, look at them. They still buying it, though. Yeah, they buying twice as much and only getting half as high. Hmm. Yo, what was that? Hmm? Castle can't move like that. Yo, Castle move up and down or sideways like. Nah, we ain't playing that. Man, look at the boy playing checkers. <laughs> checkers? Yeah, checkers. <laughs> Yo, why y'all playing checkers on the chess set? Yo, why you give a shit? <laughs> man, we ain't got no checkers. Yeah, but yo, chess is a better game, yo. So? <laughs> nah, hold up, hold up. 
Y'all don't know how to play chess, do you? So? So, so nothing, man. Look, I'll teach y'all if y'all want to learn. I come on, you. man, nah, come on. Right in the middle it's of a game, yo. Down, chill out. I want to see look, this. Y'all can't be playing no checkers or no chess, right. boy, yo. All right, all right, all right, man. Now look, check it. It's simple, it's simple. See this? This the kingpin, all right? And he the man. You get the other dude's king, you got the game. And he trying to get your king too, so you got protected. Now the king, he move one space any direction he damn choose, cause he's the king. Like this, 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 all right? But he ain't got no hustle. But the rest of these motherfuckers on the team, they got his back. And they run so deep, he really ain't gotta do shit. I like your uncle. Yeah, like my uncle. You see this? It's the queen. She's smart, she fierce. She move any way she want, as far as she want. And she is the go get shit done piece. Remind me of Stringer. <laughs> and this over here is the castle. It's like the stash. You move like this, and like this. Dog, stash don't move, man. Come on, yo, think. How many times we moved the stash house this week? Right? And every time we move the stash, we gotta move a little muscle with it, right? To protect it. True. True. We right. Alright. What about them little bald-headed bitches right there? Alright, these right here. These are the pawns. They like the soldiers. They move like this. One space forward only. Except when they fight. And it's like... Like this. And they like the front lines. They be out in the field. So how do you get to be the king? It ain't like that. See, the king, stay the king, all right? Everything stay who he is, except for the pawns. Now, if a pawn made it all the way down to the other dude's side, you get to be queen. And like I said, the queen ain't no bitch. She got all the moves. All right, so if I make it to the other end, I win. If you catch the other dude's king and trap it, then you win. But if I make it to the end, I'm top dog. Nah, yo, it ain't like that. Look, the pawns, man, in the game, they get capped quick. They be out the game early. Unless they some smart-ass pawns. What the wire has done for me. Oh, man, where do I begin? Uh, whew. As a fan, as somebody who considers themselves a wire aficionado, not using that term lightly at all. I mean, it's pretty much an understatement. It's been literally one of the greatest pieces of television, one of the greatest pieces of literature to ever touch, uh, to ever touch us as a human race, honestly. It's, there's never really been anything like it. You know, no one's ever gotten it right. It's hard for people to tell a story and really, really, really get it right in every single detail, every corner, every crevice of the detail. And they got it right across the board. I mean, rarely do you see television or literature or any form of art where you nail it 100% of the way. And that's what happened with The Wire. I mean, there's a reason why 20 years later, it's still the epitome of, of the standard, right? Like I always say, if you can touch that, you're pretty much Michael Jordan with it. You know, like The Wire is Michael Jordan, man. And um, I, I'm just the biggest fan of it. You know, I remember watching it, man, when it first came out and just being into it immediately because me being from Brooklyn, being from New York, 
seeing something that wasn't based in New York but felt so familiar because of the neighborhoods and because of what was going on with our people and because of the things that, you know, we had uh, been subjected to to live amongst and be around and what was going on in this country. And it just showed me that no matter where you're from, every hood, for lack of a better term, is pretty much the same because you could be from Brooklyn and relate to some kids from West Baltimore. You could be from L.A. You could be from Chicago, Detroit, you know, New Orleans, Atlanta, whatever it might be, and relate to this world in West Baltimore. And um, it's there's never been anything like it. I mean, the writing, the writing to me is the star of the show, right? I mean, the the cast was impeccably casted, but for me, the writing is the star of the show, without a doubt. And um, man, I, I I get goosebumps talking about it, you know. So um, you know, I, I've been honored and privileged to have personal relationships with some of the cast. You know, shout to Julito, shout to Tristan Wiles. Those are my guys on a personal level, and. Um, I'm I'm just a humongous fan. I can't say that enough. I feel like I said that four times already, but I, I really can't describe it enough, man. I I've mentioned the wire on pretty much every single project I've dropped. You know, for me as a rapper, as a writer, as an MC, as a lyricist and a songwriter, I find so much inspiration in a crew of people who aren't rappers and who aren't songwriters and aren't lyricists, right? Like one of my biggest inspirations as an MC is David Simon, you know, and David Simon isn't a rapper, he's not a songwriter, none of that, but as an MC, I find so much inspiration in his work, and the whole cast, you know, uh, the, the, whole, the whole staff, rather, you know, the whole creative team behind it, that pen, man, the, the writing is the star of the show to me, and then it trickles down from there, so 20 years later, man, my appreciation is through the roof as somebody who was never involved with the show, never, you know, on the inner workings of it, just somebody on the outside sitting on a couch every Sunday night glued in. My appreciation is through the roof. I can't thank y'all enough for what y'all did, for getting the story right of what it's like in this place we call urban America. So thank y'all 100%. This is Sky Zoo tapping in on 20 years of the wire for Fly Fidelity. Y'all don't know how to play chess, do you? See this? This the kingpin, and he the man. I like your uncle. You get the other dude's king, you got the game. This the queen, she fierce. She move any way she want, she got all the moves. Remind me of strings. These are the pawns, they like the soldiers. In the game, they get capped quick. So how do you get to be the king? See, the king, stay the king. Avon Barksdale, Stringer Bell. Crew's been running Franklin Terrace for a year. Well, a new power. We chase Spread the word, dog. Omar back. Murders, the money. This is a great case. Make the deal. Shots fired. Officers need assistance. You send out the word. You let them know we ain't dead yet. Comes a day you're gonna have to decide whether it's about you or about the work. 
These guys are good. They're organized. It ain't about right. It's about money. Like you guys never stole nothing back in the day. We ain't back in the day. Go, go, go! You follow the drugs, you get a drug case. You start following the money, you don't know where you're going. Senator Davis, y'all making friends in a lot of places, right? That's the best work I ever did. Call the shit a war. Why not? War's end. I got the shotgun. Got the briefcase. It's on the game, though, right? We're building something here, detective. We're building it from scratch. All the pieces matter. It's a cold, motherfucker. It's a cold world, Bowden. Thought you said it was getting warmer, man. World going one way? People another, yo. We used to make shit in this country, build shit. Now we just put our hand in the next guy's pocket. Yeah, now, well, the thing about the old days, they the old days. Family, that's it, family. And if you're lucky, one or two friends who are the same as family. That's all the best of us get. My name was on the street. We bouncing this shit here, I'm gonna go down in them corners, let them people know. Word did not get back to me. Let them know Marlo stepped to any motherfucker, Omar, Barksdale, whoever. My name is my name. You'd rather live in shit than let the world see you work a shovel. Look, man, I do what I can do to help y'all. But the game is out there. And it's either play or get played. They fuck up, they get beat. We fuck up, they give us pensions. Ain't no shame in holding on to grief. As long as you make room for other things, too. Forget about that for a while, man. You know, just dream with me. We ain't got to dream no more, man. You know what the most dangerous thing in America is, right? Nigga with a library card. A man must have a code. Oh, no doubt. The game is rigged. But you cannot lose if you do not play. I'm gonna show you as gently as I can how much you don't know. You come at the king, you best not miss. This is Kenneth B. Inch from Dead End celebrating the 20th anniversary of The Wire with flawed fidelity. Um, what does The Wire mean to me? The Wire is probably one of the greatest TV shows of all time. I'm just going to go on record and say it is one of the greatest TV shows of all time. And to be honest, I was extremely late to The Wire. I never watched it while it was in season. I watched it while it was out of season, and I um, extremely regret that decision, just not being able to tap in and be a part of the discourse that took place while it was while it was in season. I've always heard how great the show was, but you know how things go, man. People hype stuff up all the time, and you know it just kind of never really lives up to the hype. The Wire was different, though, 
And one of the things that I love about The Wire is how it really gave you an inside look into like urban cities and how a, a teen of youth um, kids can simply just get stuck in this um, in the system is the plain way I can I can uh, say it. Um, and, and you know the the first season is all about kind of introducing the characters and letting you know who's who. But we kind of start like right in motion. And the second season is one that people kind of, you know, jump on a lot. But, you know, as BZ430 says all the time, it's a very important season in how it connects everything. And um, and he is like, B, B watched The Wire, like he can probably talk about this thing from uh, left to right, up, down, uh, down and across. But, um, but yeah, but that season is an important one that connects everything else. But for me, when I got to season three, um, that was when it became clear. And that was when I was able to see how, no matter what these characters did, no matter how they tried to do it, they just couldn't escape. And one way or the other, they were going to be like caught up in the system. And um, the storytelling, the writing, it was just kind of amazing how you know, you kind of watch the progression of how all of that took place, um, and it was, and and all the way up to the the very last season, um, you know, or the last couple of seasons when they bring in like the political side of it, and you see all of those games and how the decisions they make, you know, from a media perspective, um, impacts things, you know, in in the inner city, man, it's it's brilliant to actually be able to really paint a very clear picture of how all of that stuff takes place. And it's one of the aspects that oftentimes, you know, um, that we talk about uh, out loud, but it's like we're talking about it. And I think what The Wire does is it shows you and you can actually see it for yourself. And, um, and you don't have to really listen to us. And, you know, if, if you don't take it for the bit of fiction that it is or, and just take it as a as like, of fictionary example of what actually take place um you 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 would be uh, amazed at it and and that was the thing that i loved is that it just detailed out how the system works and how some of these people are just trapped no matter how hard they try or how good they are and um and it was you know it was very 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 tragic uh and you know and and that's it man but the wire is a very very special show and at some point, if you are a TV uh, buff or something like that, then you you have to watch it, even if you don't like it. I think it's one of those literary works, so to speak, that you just have to consume up there with. You know, in, in, in school, they always tell you, you got to read the classics, right? I think The Wire is one of those television shows where it's a classic and you have to watch it. Um, so, yeah, that, that's what I got, man. The Wire is special. And if you haven't seen it, uh, then I suggest you check it out. Pop quiz. City Council? Eastside, maybe? State Senator. Clay Davis, 39th District.
Shit, boy. You look up incumbent in the damn dictionary and you'll see Clarence Royce smiling back at you. Shit, partner. All you gotta do is show Carcetti and everybody else that they already got the man for the job. I'm providing you with the opportunity to go head to head with the state's attorney in a case that's gonna be front page news. For all that profile, shit. Why don't you save that silver tongue bullshit for the jury? He's slick. Apologizes for the short con. Shouldn't you be dead to me? Shit. I took it easy on you, son. You got off cheap. <laughs> and then the next breath setting us up for the law. As far as the federal money's concerned, he's everything. The faucet, the goose. Oh, goose. The one that lays them golden eggs. <laughs> and do we know what the long con is? At least we know he's running one. She. <laughs> Dobie? For governor of my state? She. Money laundering? They gonna come talk to me about money laundering in West Baltimore? She. Major crimes? She. The people know what I've done for West Baltimore and this city as a whole. They know these charges ain't nothing but BS. Oh, hey, hold it now. It's ready up. Think I'm gonna be the scapegoat for the whole damn machine? She. she. Thanks for your time. Hey, 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 y'all already know what it is. It's infamous Scott Bar right now celebrating 20 years of the wild on Fly Fidelity. <laughs> Listen, check this out, right? So right now we're talking about the wild, right? I think I was on what? Uh, season 2. So that's 2004. Wow. It's 2004. Episodes, Duck and Cover, and Stray Rounds. But before we get in that, um, let me see how I got the how I got the role on the Wire. If you think about it, the first season of the Wire, they wasn't playing Baltimore hip hop in the Wire. Now they would play New York music and a lot of stuff. So I had an attitude about that. So mind you, I'm the hottest artist in Baltimore City. So what I did is I went down there with an attitude. With my music, and I um I actually um took the music to play in there, and they for some reason they liked my voice and asked me to read a part. I read the part for the um people, then I can ask me to come back down and read the part. I read a part for a whole bunch of people, and and I got it. I got the part, but I think what helped me get the part even more is that uh the dude Michael K Williams, you know who was who was play Omar recipes. He, uh, man, him was cool. Man, him was cool, because he did music, too. Man, him was cool, and I guess he finagled with that situation and got me to, got me up in there. But, um, other than that, it was a, a very great experience for me to, uh, that was my first acting role, and it was naturally for me to act that way, because, I don't know, just Baltimore was just simple. You know, wasn't no different than everyday life, for real. Um... We say like, mm, you know, celebrating 20 years of the Y. Well, it's more, it's a little less than that, but man, it's 2020, it's 2004 though. I don't know, like me and Bodie was cool, cause that's what I was trying to kill in my episodes for taking over my block. I mean, one time, uh, 
<laughs> it's going to trip you out. One time, after, after we filmed, I was done filming. I was off the show and everything. I really, my character really ain't exist. He was just a street boy. I ain't had no name or nothing. So one time, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in the city. My song's playing in the strip clubs and all that. I went down Norma Jeans one day, and he was randomly in there. He ain't know where he knew me from. That man thought we was really beefing. So he was really timid when I walked in there. I said, yo, we shot a scene together in season two. I think this was on season, he was on season, probably the end of season three or something. He got all about me. But yo, man was cool after that. Other than that, everything is love on and up and up. I appreciate y'all giving me this opportunity to speak to y'all about this. You know what I mean? Y'all can check out my music. It's on iTunes, Apple Music, Tidal. Just look me up, Scott Bar. I'm here. And hey, y'all already know what it is, man. Scott Bar. What's up? This is DJ Alchemy. I'm a producer slash DJ, part of the Mean Business Records family, and I'm here to celebrate 20 years of The Wire on the Fly Fidelity podcast. Where to start with the greatest TV show in history? I've actually watched the show right through. I'm pretty sure it's got to be six times now. Uh, The best thing I can say about the show, it, it seems... Like every time I've watched it through, I notice things that I've missed on previous run throughs, which is crazy to me. <laughs> the first time I remember seeing uh, anything to do with the wire was um, was in a hip hop magazine in the UK called Hip Hop Connection. I yeah I kept seeing it on like adverts and stuff. Um, so yeah, it must have stuck in my head because it it happened the next time that I was out record shopping. I noticed the DVD, the same cover, so I kind of just bought it on impulse. And I'm very picky, um, some say annoyingly picky, when it comes to music, films and TV shows and, you know, art in general. So I kind of went in with zero expectations. But I knew after two, two, three episodes that I was onto something like really special and unique. Um, I'm a big fan of slow burner shows and like films and stuff. So where there's interesting character development, 
yeah, I'm all in. So the wire was perfect in that regard. And just the way they were really able to flesh out the uh, sheer amount of characters, the abundance of characters over the course of the show with it in no way being scattergun is just testament to the genius of the writing on that show and the pacing of the show is just is the best I've seen, uh, the best I've watched. Probably my favourite pick um, for my favourite character on the show, which I've changed at least half a dozen times, but I've happily now settled on Lester Freeman. Um, my particular highlights with Lester Freeman is the scene that him and McNulty get into um, a dispute and Lester drops the immortal line and something like, you're not worth the skin off my knuckles, Junior. But the part of that scene that was even better for me was the way um, he talked to Kima, basically letting Kima know that she's uh, she's let him down and just her facial expression just kind of give you a, a give you a quick insight into their into their relationship you know without without having to do any backstory you could tell just by her reaction there was there was kind of a mentorship going on there and she knew she'd let him down which I thought was amazing how they just put that in that scene and also the the scene where Lester realizes the bodies are being buried in the buildings or the the, um, the tombs as he labeled them just oh, that scene it makes my hair stand on end even thinking about that scene and the way Bunk is watching him do his work and he's actually thinking he's losing his mind. But the great genius of um, of Lester Freeman, you know, cracks the case wide open. There's, that scene is a major highlight for me. And there's so many standout performances and amazing story acts. And it seems like it's one of them cliche statements. But I can honestly, honestly say I felt near enough every single emotion while watching The Wire. You know, I've laughed, I've cried, that type of thing. But I don't think I've ever rooted for, for characters as much as I have in The Wire. Especially, like, you know, Bubbles. Everyone will always go with Bubbles. But my particular one, who I rooted for, was Dookie. And, you know, his demise into drug abuse, just it was burned into my psyche. I, I couldn't sleep, you know, <laughs> when it came about that. I could see, you know, where he was going in his life. And it was, oh, it was so disappointing and heart-wrenching. It was amazing. And I'm I'm just in, in complete awe of the broad scope of the show and just how every season gives you a, you know, a real close look at how Baltimore is, uh, is run, warts and all. I love how the the political landscape is shown, you know, and the the effect that the political landscape has on the police force. Um, the same thing with the the media. It's just it's it 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 made me aware of stuff that I probably wouldn't have been aware of before I watched The Wire, um, and just how Baltimore and inner cities in general, you know, have to deal with with statistics within the the police force. And the politics involved, it was so it was the first show that I know of that really shone a light into that type of um in that type of inner city um life. And yeah, I've lost I've lost count of the amount of people I've put onto the wire. It's almost like a badge of honour with me. <laughs> As any time I recommend a new film or you know, a music album to somebody you know, they're listening now because, you know, I'm the guy that put the wire in front of them. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I could literally sit here for hours and wax lyrical about the wire. I'm 100% a massive, huge, super fan. I'll revisit the series again, no doubt. 
But for now, I'll sign off and just say congratulations to everyone involved in the making of The Wire for just making something so sincere, so impactful uh, and so uh, and lasting. Um, you know, I, I can't praise the show enough. Uh, congratulations to everyone involved and salute from DJ Alchemy. Thank you. See this? This the kingpin, all right? He the man. You get the other dude's king, you got the game. But he trying to get your king too. So you got protected. All right, these right here, these are the pawns. They like the soldiers. And they like the front lines. They be out in the field. So how do you get to be the king? It ain't like that. See, the king, stay the king. Everything stay who he is, except for the pawns. The pawns, man, in the game, they get capped quick. They be out the game early. Unless they some smart-ass pawns. The word on the street. Groundbreaking television from the channel where it all began. The Wire continues Wednesdays at 10 on FX. Hello, this is a prepaid collect call from an inmate at institution. This call is subject to recording and monitoring. To accept charges, press 1. To refuse charges, thank you for using T-Netics. You may start the conversation now. All right, but hey, this is ASAP and I'm celebrating the 20th anniversary of The Wire with Fly Fidelity. Um, the Wire, for real, um, I really started watching during um, season four. The most interesting thing about The Wire that I liked about season four was that it was kids that uh, the summer. It was four of them, for real. It was very relatable. I was in eighth grade when it happened, for real, so it was very um, relatable. Um, it's a really good show from Marlo Stanzo, from Bodie, you know what I mean? One of my favorite actors, for real, was uh, Michael. You know what I mean? And um, even Marla, like the episode, My Name Is My Name, that was season five, but that name doesn't meant a lot for her, you know? So like being from Baltimore to Wyatt, definitely, um, I mean, it, it definitely put a light on Baltimore. Everybody loves the show. Even when I'm outside of Baltimore, people always ask about what's going on. Uh, is the Baltimore just like the Wyatt's world? You know what I mean? So that Baltimore's a small city, so that definitely put, put a light on what's going on in the city and what, what's effective, you know what I mean? And one thing, I, and another thing, bro, this it's, it's a good show. It, it touched all bases of life, of life of the city, from the newspaper to the to the docks, to the ports, you know, from drug dealing and stuff like that. Even season one, the apartment's not even up no more, you know. So one of my favorite characters, for real, was um, Bodie before he snitched, of course, you know what I mean? And uh, he was a real soldier. He was a stand-up dude, for real. Slim Charles was one of them, too, also. Michael, you know what I mean? Even everybody had cool little, even like the Muslim, you know what I mean? That the, with the bow tie, you know. And, and of course, Avon, you know what I mean? So, ASAP, uh, the Y is very, very effective, real with it. And not in day of life, but it's a good show overall what people like for real. Hello, my name is Ernest Dickerson. I directed several episodes of The Wire, and I'm here to talk about my experiences doing that. There are two kinds of kids walking in this building. Stoop kids, corner kids. No, stoop kids. They're the ones that stay on the front steps when the parents tell them. The others go down to the corners. You follow drugs, you get drug addicts and drug dealers. Get your hands up! Get down! But you start to follow the money, 
and you don't know where it's going to take you. You think I have time to ask a man why he's giving me money or where he gets his money from? The game is out there, and it's either play or be a play. It's Baltimore, gentlemen. The gods will not save you. Barksdale has five out of seven towers on the terrace. I'm just a gangster, I suppose. And I want my corners. These people do not touch the drugs. They don't go near the drugs. The wire is what gives us Barksdale. Day by day, piece by piece. The thing is, you gotta be patient. Learn the job, love the job. Let the game begin. How is it you always got the whole world pissed off at you? Jimmy is an addict, sir. What's he addicted to? Himself. It's also what makes him good police. He does not get to win. We get to win. We don't have the courage and the conviction to fight this war the way it should be fought, the way it needs to be fought. Well, then we're staring at defeat, and that defeat will not be forgiven. Can't even call this shit a war. Why not? War's end. I've been out there since I was 13. I've been straight up, but what come back? This game is rigged, man. Be like the little bitches on the chessboard. Pawns. You go a long way in this country killing black folk. Young males especially. We always in the market for a good soldier. This here ain't you. Many of these kids are profoundly damaged. What they've seen, how they've lived. You older than your daddy was when he went out on the corner. Well, he done got him locked up. Yeah, it's the message, D. You can't show no weakness. A man must have a code. You come at the camp, you best not miss. Can you remember where you were when he got the call to join The Wire as a director? And what was your relationship with the show up until that point? Um, I don't remember when I got the call. Uh, <laughs> a lot of water under the bridge since then. But right. the uh, the show, I had only seen a couple of episodes because I, I, I hadn't actually been watching television shows at that point. Uh, I believe my wife at the time had been watching the show. But... Uh, I pretty much did not watch much television. The person that I had the most, uh, that I had a previous relationship was Nina Noble, who was uh, one of the executive producers. Uh, she had actually been uh, an assistant director for me. And uh, this was around the time that I actually started working in television. The Wire was one of the first TV shows I ever did. So it was, uh, so I don't remember, it was, it was brand new. I could have been working on another show, then found out about it. What was it that stuck out and connected with you the most back then? Well, the thing that 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 really I thought was really interesting is that how serialized it was, because there were no TV shows at that point at that time that were working like that. You know, everything was, you know, one story was told within an hour or half an hour up to that point. The only shows that I had seen that were serialized were the British shows, um, which were, you know, some of the ones that I did like to look at whenever I looked at television. So, um, uh, but um, when uh, when I got on board, I was really, uh, you know, um, gratified to see that it was a show that wanted filmmaking. You know, there's a, 
a lot of television shows up to that point, uh, the role of the director was one of kind of like a traffic director, actually. You know, they, the, the studios and the networks and the, and the producers wanted you to shoot as much footage as possible uh, so that they could decide the, the, the final shape of the show in editorial. Uh, which to me goes against what directing is all about. To me, directing is having a point of view on how a scene should be played, and you shoot it for that specifically. Um, you know, it used to be what Gordon Willis used to call the dump truck school of directing. You just shoot everything you can think of, every single angle, and then they all dump it together. Uh, well, The Wire didn't want that. You know, they um, they wanted a filmmaker's approach, which... So for me, it was shooting it like I had been shooting uh, 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 features. We're talking about a show that represented a leap in the evolution of the genre. What were the biggest differences as an episodic director on Third Watch, which is already at that point in time considered one of the great cop shows? What were the differences between directing that and directing an episode of The Wire, which was a subversion of the standard cop show back then? Well, you know, since I didn't have that much of a of a of a history of doing television. When I was doing Third Watch, uh, I directed it the way I would directed everything else. You know, uh, my my previous experience had been had been movies, mm-hmm. um, and having a very specific point of view for each scene and just shooting for that. You know, almost kind of uh, editing in my head, knowing how I wanted it to cut together. So. You know, that's one of the things that actually kept me away from doing episodics for so long because it just seemed to be go against the grain of, of, of what filmmaking required. And um, and Third Watch was uh, the first show I did. And then I think The Wire was the second show I did. Uh, oh, really? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and even then, I was coming on The Wire uh, towards the end of the second season. Um, right. And uh, so, you know, it was just uh, finding my legs, you know, coming into a situation that had already been set up. All my previous experience had been, I'm doing the movie, I'm setting it up, I'm hiring the crew, I'm hiring the cinematographer. Um, But, you know, it was a little bit different in coming into it with uh, something that had already been set up and running and me trying to fit into it. So, um, you know, it was a little bit nerve a little bit nerving i don't want to say nerve-wracking but it was a little bit nervous at first you know just trying to figure out how i could fit into it and um and you know basically all i had to do was just stick to my guns when you walk through the
So you're coming to The Wire as a director for season two, like you said, at the end of 2003. Directing the episode Bad Dreams. What are your strongest memories directing and developing that episode specifically? Really loving the quality of the acting in it uh, and the writing, you know, and, um, and uh, you know, my tendency is to uh, storyboard. I storyboard a lot. Mm. Everything that I do, I storyboard myself. You know, I work out what I call a visual script of how I want to tell the story. And, um, you know, how, you know, I knew that Sabaka, we weren't going to see him die, but, you know, I just had to figure out how to use that landscape to show and symbolize a man who's walking to his death. Um, so, you know, he just, I, I just had him diminish in the frame, you know, he just like walked, walked away, 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 away. And that was the last time we saw him alive. Um, so, you know, just using that kind of uh, symbiology for, um, for telling the story, which was uh, something that uh, uh, David Simon and, and the rest of them, you know, kind of liked. So I guess that's why they brought me back, you know, to do so much for the third season. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, let's talk about the novelistic density of this writing you're talking about. The writer's room had some of the major talent you know, in a wire whose work extended well beyond television. What was it like working with George Pelikanovs? Oh, George is so cool. Love George. Um, you know, what was what, what, what I love about uh, George, um, he's, a, he's a big film buff. So in a lot of the episodes, you know, uh, a lot of times, you know, he would try to put some sort of a reference to a favorite film. And... Um, and God, I forget what season it was, but I remember there was one season we were doing it and uh, we were really kind of riffing on uh, the Sam Peckinpah film, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. You know, how much, how much we really, you know, love that film. And it was something that he tried to do, uh, you know, just to kind of recall something from the film. But, you know, it was always, uh, you know, film references that he tried to do uh, to show his love of cinema. It, it was... Um, you know, it was cinema television, which was kind of right. new at that point. You know, you didn't see much, much in the way of cinematic television back then. Now it's, you know, it's all over the place. In terms of this cinematic, you know, inspiration you're talking about, David Simon said that he's learned a lot from watching documentaries, especially the work of Frederick Wiseman. What did you learn personally from Wiseman? Um, I can't honestly say that I've, I'm a big student of Wiseman. I haven't really uh, watched that much of it. Um, so I guess he saw it, you know, I guess that affected his writing. But in terms of how I approach the material, um, my references are not documentary filmmakers, but uh, uh, storytellers, you know, fictional filmmakers. Um, yeah. So, you know, my I'm affected more by people like uh, Orson Welles and uh, Alfred Hitchcock and David Lean and Stanley Kubrick. So, uh, you know, that's where I get my inspiration from. Were you looking at those directors working on The Wire specifically? Uh, I look at them all the time, <laughs> you know, you know, whether I'm working on The Wire, whether I'm working on something else. Uh 
you know, I kind of like, uh, I look at that all the time. Uh, just last night, I looked at the new 4K Blu-ray of Lawrence of Arabia that I got. Um, you know, just taking a look at that beautifully. But um, but I'm always looking at films. I'm always looking at uh, movies. That's kind of like why I didn't really embrace television until until The Wire, because I spent my time looking at movies. I have quite an extensive collection. Uh, back then it was DVDs. Now it's uh, Blu-rays. Um, and uh, I'm always looking at at uh, films. That's why I'm so happy to see that now television has become such a cinematic uh, cinematic medium, um, mm. and uh, you know that uh, that's what's asked for now. They want they want every show to feel like a movie, and uh, of course they don't give us much more time to to do that you know you're still trying to do it mm -hmm. within uh eight to ten days but uh but yeah they want more quality so so watching the films has paid off i think well let's talk about the time it's interesting you say that you know the speed of television at this point how tight were these production deadlines and was it always the same amount of days you're shooting and preparing an episode for uh, usually it was like eight to 10 days. That's the, that's the average time of a, of a television show. I think sometimes for the wire, sometimes we had maybe a little bit more because it was mostly location. And so, you know, some days when you're, when you're shooting in three or four different locations and you've got to do those company moves, you know, you got to move from one location to the next. It's takes, takes hours. So, um, so some days, you know, were longer. You know, some shows were longer than others, but still, um, compared to feature time, it's still really, really fast. But uh, but I had always been in a situation to shoot fast. There were very few shows that I did as a cinematographer or as a director where I had a, a really long schedule. Probably the longest schedule I've ever had was on uh, Malcolm X which was my last film as a director of photography. That's right. You know, but other than that, everything else was, uh, um, you know, like 30 days, 40 days, 20 days, some shows, 20 days. That's why I always used to, I always used to get a big kick out of hearing interviews with some young directors saying there's no way they could shoot a movie in less than 60 days. And I'd laugh. <laughs> oh, you can't, <laughs> huh? Well, wow. How long was Malcolm X? Ooh, we um, well, we did have a break. We started shooting in the fall of '92, late summer, early fall of '92. I'd say Malcolm X was probably about three or four months, because we even had a break. We broke for Christmas, and then we went over to uh, went over to uh, Cairo for ten days. And then from Cairo, we went down to Cape, uh, went down to Johannesburg, South Africa, and that was a week down there. So it was, yeah, it was around three to four months. Listen carefully. I know the rule. Say it. Don't talk in the car. It was him or me. Let's get this on tape. That's not tape. That's live, brother. HBO presents a new dramatic series. The Wire, coming in June. 
tap in. If we're talking about writers, Ed mm-hmm. Burns was probably one of the main reasons why it really struck an inauthentic note. What did you learn working with Burns? Well, Burns just had, you know, some of the things I, I heard from Burns was that um, as, as groundbreaking and as uh, really the stories that he told that, that made it into the show, he said there were some things that happened that were much, much wilder that, you know, in his experience as a, as a police officer, seeing things that were much, much wilder that nobody would ever believe. And, you know, it would have been, yeah, it would have been excellent to put it in there, but nobody would believe it because some, you know, sometimes, you know, truth is weirder and stranger, yeah. you know. <laughs> and uh, he said he did see some things that people did to themselves, you know, some crimes that were committed that were so crazy you know, which would have made really, really great cinema. But he said, but, uh, but nobody would believe it. It's just too fantastic. So, you know, just to, you know, just finding out, um, you know, I've known a lot of police officers in my life and just, uh, you know, it's a tough job. And, you know, just some of the things that they see and some of the things they experience, um, it's uh, sometimes we just have no idea what they're really going through. Well, You say it was a tough job. Was it a tough job translating those experiences into the story for The Wire? How much of directing The Wire comes from David Simon's time with the Baltimore Police Department and observing what their daily work was on translating that? Well, I think all of it. I mean, uh, you know, it was all, everybody was based on on real life situations. So uh, uh, I even met... uh, I think it was the, the, the brother, the real Avon Barksdale. Um, but, you know, all those guys were based on real, real people. And, um, and, you know, we were always shooting in really interesting locations. Um, and uh, a lot of the uh, drug dealers in town were kind of pissed at us because a lot of times we were shooting right next door to uh, a place where they were dealing drugs. You know, we didn't know, you know, we just moved in, you know, it was a great location and we moved in to start shooting there, but we were interfering in their trade. So, right. you know, they got a little, they got a little pissed off at us from time to time. Did that last long? Well, it was, you know, whenever you're shooting in Baltimore and you're shooting different places, you know, you're bound to, you're bound to land in, in some place that's, uh, you know, uh, ordinarily wouldn't like to go to, you know what I'm saying? Right. But it's a complex city, isn't it? When it comes to Baltimore, mm-hmm. we're talking about a very complex city. But it's also the Wire's main character, and it's a depressing one. I wanted to ask you how that complexity informs these characters and your direction of those characters. Can you speak to, you know, making Baltimore an active protagonist, which is constantly shaping the course of the plot? Uh, yeah, well, you know, the architecture of Baltimore, um, the row house architecture was, uh, you know, it's very distinctive. It really became a, uh, a major part of, uh, of season four and five, you know, when they were putting the bodies in the houses. Um, but you know, it has, um, it has a history cause it's one of the oldest American cities. Uh, 
and uh, you know places like Fells Point that have such a uh, such a feeling to it. Fells Point is probably it's right down on the water, so it's like one of the oldest parts of the city, and and just some of the things that had happened there in the past, and that was like one of the hangouts of Edgar Allan Poe. Really? Uh, yeah, That's yeah, yeah, yeah. There were some bars. There were some bars in in Fells Point that uh, had been in business since the 1700s. Wow. One couple of them were um, were Edgar Allan Poe hangout spots. Um, there were two. There were two bars. One one time, my wife and I actually, you know, we said let's let's hit some of the Poe bars. And there was one called yeah, you know, there was that. Then there was another one I think called the Wharf Rat or something like that, which was an old bar. But but yeah, there was one bar that was right on Fells Point, and uh, I think it had been opened in like 1750, something like that. And it stayed open, just been renovated. The building just kept up, but it's just like a historic place. Incredible. Yeah. So it's almost like, you know, you can really feel that, that Baltimore was a city of ghosts. You know, all the things that had happened there, you know, the the fact that at Fells Point, there were two times in, in the city's history where um, there was uh, the, bubonic, the bubonic plague hit and there were like mass casualties there were a lot of deaths actually Fells Point is a beautiful little park there and I found out that the park is actually built over two mass graves that were dug there because so many people had died from the plague they couldn't afford to bury them all so they put them in a mass grave and then 20 years later it hit again and they put another mass grave over that one so it's just kind of weird. It just makes you feel that there's a weird psychic energy in some parts of the city. Um, and um, the old bar that I talked about, I remember um, hearing stories about it. And my wife and I had gone out to dinner one night. We actually met a lady who had worked in the bar. And uh, and when she applied for the job, you know, she didn't know anything about it. When she applied for the job, the first thing they asked her was, do you scare easily? <laughs> and she said, why? He said, well, if you work here, you're going to see or experience some things that could be really, really scary. So if you frighten easily, we would advise you not to work here. And so she said, sure. She took the job. And, uh, and she said she was working one night and they were getting ready to close up. And they, you know, you know how they, when you close up and they take the, the, the chairs and they turn them upside down and put them on top of the tables, you know, then she went into the back, you know, just for like a couple of seconds and then came back out and all the chairs were now laying on the floor. She didn't hear it. She didn't hear any crashing or anything, but all those chairs were now laying on the floor. How did that happen? So, uh. You know, it's it's like little things like that that makes you think that it's really a, a haunted city, and um, and with a lot of the tragedy that the, that the wire talked about, um, you can kind of get a feeling that you know it's always been that way. The 
Wire, the complete second season. The Wire is really us writing about what, where we live and what we know. Trying to use this season of the show to be an elegy for those union wage, working class people that sort of built these kinds of cities. Y'all need to remind yourself of who you is and where you come from. I was very interested in, in doing a project on the waterfront. I don't need you to tell me how bad things are at the docks. What exactly are your people going to be stealing today? There's some guys that are showing a lot of money. Port guys. Drugs, maybe, or the usual thieving. Girls are dying on my docks. This is how it goes. On my docks, this happened. Nobody here wanted this. One of the most engrossing shows on television. Make the deal. You need to go see the Greek and get a number. He's got one on the way. Amazing. A whole new world. Target is Frank Sabatka. City homicide. Who got killed? Both dead girls in a can. That Rome wants a war, he's got one. Brutal and absorbing. We'd start watching what's happening on the docks in real time. We got the wire up. Eyes and ears both. We got one. So what's next? To get them dock boys back to thinking that we've gone away. Where's your friend? The homicide guy. Case is done for all I know. Extraordinary and sharply realistic. The Wire, the complete second season. 12 one-hour episodes. I smell fresh police work. Bonus features include Museum of Television and Radio panel discussion, deleted scenes, audio commentaries, and much more. The Wire, the complete second season. You know, I think season two dealt a lot with the, uh, um, you know, crime in the supply chain. Hmm. You know, the, the docks. You know, down at the down in the harbor, that's uh, that's a supply chain where uh, you know uh, ships come in with the goods. You know, coming in from you know other countries and other cities with the goods. So uh, you just feel that crime is still part of the supply chain. You know, everybody's trying to get their fingers in that pie. So I think it's it's been that way for a long time. You know, even movies like uh, On the Waterfront dealt with that. You know, that's uh, the crime in the uh, supply chain. Uh, and I'm sure it still happens. It's a uh, it's major crime, major crime area. So I think it's, I think it, you know, it's continuing. You know, we we have supply chain problems now that have been exacerbated by the, uh, by the COVID crisis. Yeah. You know, like uh, I remember hearing about all the ships that are off the coast of, of California who, you know, who can't get in, you know, because they got to wait to get in to offload their stuff. And meanwhile, you know, you have uh, people having a hard time uh, getting, you know, formula for their babies, diapers, you know, um, you know, just just everyday goods. So absolutely. So, you know, you know, crime is in there someplace. So it's it's kind of like a continuing. It's like the inside look at at what happens inside our, our supply chain. That's what uh, The Wire did for the second season. Definitely. And of course, you return for the third season for two episodes, one of which featuring some character-defining scenes with Omar that go on to lay some foundations for what comes in later episodes. What was it like working with and sharing conversations with the late, great Michael Kenneth Williams? Oh, Michael Williams was, was, was really, really cool. Um, I mean, you know, his, I love the character of Omar. And it was uh, it was great to work with him. Uh, and you know, Omar was one of those characters that uh, I was hoping would always be around. You know, I never wanted to see him die. Um, 
And I think, when did they tell me? I think it was the third season when I was sitting in a tone meeting. That was one of the interesting things about tone meetings is that sometimes you can find out, um, could find, you know, find out the fate of characters a couple of seasons away. Mm. And um, they told me that they were going to kill him off in the fifth season. How did you react? If they got one. I was like, oh, man, do you have to? Because, <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you know, it's, you know, you, you want to think after the movie, after the show was done that, you know, somebody like Omar was still out yeah. there, you know. Uh, but I couldn't tell anybody, you know, I couldn't tell Michael, you know, you're sworn to secrecy with stuff like that. So it's, um, so it's, uh, you know, but, you know, we hung out together, you know, even, even offset, you know, and he was just, uh, just a beautiful brother. And, uh, he's really, really, he's really, really missed. That's the great thing about the wire is that a lot of us are still in, still in touch with each other. Nice. Uh, my wife and Sonia Sohn are, are tight. They're really tight, still tight. And, um, still in touch with, um, Anthony Hemingway, you know, who was my AD back then. And now he's gone on to be a successful director in his own right. And, um, and, uh, you know, we still talk with Clark Peters, uh, uh, you know, still talk with a lot of the guys. That's great. So. That's great. A lot of the mm -hmm. cast are actually Baltimoreans through and through, aren't they? Did you ever meet Donnie Andrews, the real-life inspiration who was partially based on Omar's character? I, I guess I had a certain amount of street cred and respect because I had I made the movie Juice. <laughs> so, so that helped. you know, with a lot of folks. Yeah, that, that did. It, 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 still to this day, you know, I still get, um, I got a lot of street cred respect for you know for that so it was you know just um you know just talking when man to man you know just it was really cool do you have a favorite omer moment you directed mm. i'd have to go through the shows again because uh for another interview about the wire i had to go back and relook at my episodes because uh it all kind of runs together after a while. I can imagine. Um, I remember episode where he's sitting in the car eating a fish sandwich, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and uh, you know because it's some really great seafood, right? In um, in, uh, in in Baltimore, really great seafood. So. Um, I remember that. Um, also, oh God, I think it was. Um, I did the season finale of season three, and uh, there was there was a nice shot that I did of him throwing a a gun in the water and walking away. A night shot down on the water. Yes. But I'd have to go. I'd have to really go over everything because you know. Whenever you look at the episodes, you relive stuff. You know, you say, "Oh, wow, I remember when that happened," because there was so many, so many days. You know, unfortunately, after a while, it all runs together. It's the beauty of the wire, isn't it? Not just the fact that new fans are rediscovering a show, but you're rediscovering new memories, even though they're old memories. 
revisiting this, accessing this past we're talking about. Do you remember directing a season four finale for Final Grades? Yeah, yeah. That's one of the shows that I had to look at. Uh, I think we did a, a Zoom conference call dealing with the water. Yeah, Final Grades was uh, was real interesting because, um, you know, it was uh, how a lot of characters came. You know, Michael ultimately became the killer that he was uh, being groomed to be. So, uh, yeah, tying up all those loose ends. The thing I remember about it, I think it was that or it was either this, because I did the season two, I did the season three and the season four finales. And I remember one of them being um, long. It was, it was, my cut was about an hour and 15 minutes. And, uh, and I tried to get it down to less than an hour, but it just didn't work. It, you know, there was no way I could do it. And, uh, and I told David, you know, I said, David, I, if I, you know, go less than an hour, man, it's not going to work. The show's not going to work at all. And he said, well, just do the best cut you can. So it was like an hour and 15 minutes. And, um, and I was really gratified to find out that HBO was going to air the full hour and 15 minute of the show. So I said, okay, that's cool. But they didn't advertise it. That's the thing that got me. Because I know a lot of people were, uh, were, what was it, TiVo? A lot of people were recording The Wire. They right. were recording the episodes. They would program their recorders to, to record for an hour. And I was trying to, you know, trying to get HBO to somehow just tell people it's going to be longer. Right. So set your TiVos an hour and 15 minutes instead of an hour and i'm sure that a lot of people were pissed off that they missed the last 15 minutes of the episode which is important it was very important yeah. to capture every minute of that episode every wire episode exactly what yeah. sequences are you storyboarding knowing that you're likely not having enough time to storyboard everything i'm assuming it's the fins that need more intense planning uh yeah um you know, like the the big raid on um, on Hamsterdam. Um, you know, with the you know when they went in and raided Hamsterdam, I had I storyboarded that. Okay. Uh, Sabaka's final final walk, I storyboarded that. Um, quite a bit, actually. You know, because for me, it's 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 kind of like a security blanket. You know, I like to go in. You know, having a good idea, you know, it's always good to, because whenever I go on location, I always take photographs of uh, which ways I want to shoot, you know, uh, where I want to stay away from, you know, what I don't want to see. Right. And, uh, and that helps to, you know, the crew know where they can put the trucks, you know, they can get the trucks as close as possible. Oh, my God. I'm sitting here, my television is playing, and they have a thing, the wire stars are coming up. There's a wire reunion that's going on. Oh wow! Right now, on the yeah on MSNBC, there's a wire reunion that's going on. I didn't know anything about it. It's an event. <laughs> crazy. This is an event. This is why we wanted to do this. This is a worldwide event. This changed history of TV. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, yeah. It's uh, it's really cool because you know Lance Riddick. You know we've worked together. You know on the wire then also working with him on Bosch. That's right. Which was really cool. Cause, uh, you know, and then, um, and then I kind of ran into him last year when I was 
shooting a show in Cape Town, South Africa, and he was in Cape Town at the same oh, time. Oh, really? Raised by Wolves. Yeah, we, yeah. When I was doing Raised by right. Wolves, and he was doing something else, but because of COVID, you know, we had to. We could only text each other and and talk by phone. But um, so surreal, so surreal. Yeah. Prior to Raised by Wolves, would the last time you would have been in South Africa been for Malcolm X? Yeah, the first and last time. What changed? Uh, well, well, when I went in 92, we were uh, to shoot Malcolm X. We were in uh, Johannesburg, Joburg, uh, and apartheid was still in full effect then. And um, everybody was convinced that there was going to be a war. Everybody was convinced there was going to be bloodshed in the streets. And um, uh, I even, we even, you know, the crew, we found this... Uh, African-American woman who had opened up a restaurant there and uh, she was going to be leaving because, you know, she said there's going to be bloodshed. It's going to be massive war and death and everything here in South Africa. And um, and it didn't happen. You know, that was the 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 amazing transformation. Yeah. You know, what, what Nelson Mandela was able to do was, was make that a peaceful revolution, which was so cool. And so. Um, and so this time I was in Cape Town, and not in Johannesburg, but to Cape Town, and beautiful place. Um, you know, it, it still has its problems. It's still trying to find out where it is. But the thing that I do, I did find there, is that um, a lot of the South Africaners seem to be ashamed of their racist past, and you know, really wanted to put it behind them, and fully aware of it. You know. So that was that was really interesting, as opposed to in '92, apartheid was in full effect, and and um, there was everything. There was you know posters selling cigarettes and and liquor, you know, that were singing the praises of what they they said. You know, they basically said that that there were no black folks in South Africa before they came there. That the black folks and the white folks got there at the same time. And there was like this brotherhood. It was almost like the old, the old Soviet posters showing the, wow. the, the, the heroic workers. You know, this was you know an apartheid. You know, selling booze. There were you know the heroic-looking white dudes and the heroic-looking black guys arm in arm. You know, uh, like celebrating brotherhood. When in reality, uh, the black folks were were being oppressed. Yeah, se severely being oppressed. So. So that was more interesting. It 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 was a. Uh, it was really an interesting place this time. Um, it was interesting the first time, but the first time you were always nervous. You always, you were always fearful. We were always fearful, um, and we were even set up at one point by the South African government to be assassinated. What's going on if you are still listening to this episode and enjoying the podcast? Why not become a patron of Fly Fidelity at patreon.com slash flyfidelity. Becoming a patron means you are directly supporting our show and helping us to create a new episode each and every week. It also means that as a thank you for being a super supporter, you'll be able to access exclusive content to you, including patron updates, offers and discounts, a monthly secret podcast, early access, and so much more. 
we had we had gone in to shoot a hostel, um, you know, where a lot of guys were staying, and the the ANC were our sponsors, and the hostels were were uh, pretty much run by the Zulus, which is uh, Swapo, I believe, and um, and so there was a guy that was supposed to be our contact and and clear the way for us to go in as American filmmakers to shoot the, the conditions in the hostel. You know, there was part of a montage that Spike wanted to put at the end of, uh, of the movie. And, um, and this contact didn't do his job. We went in, uh, we were all set to shoot. And then, uh, we were told to leave immediately. You know, we found out that, that they thought that we were spies the ANC and they wanted to kill us. The only reason it didn't kill us was because we did have some white folks on our on our crew. But what was amazing is that as we drove out the gates, there were three South African Army troop carriers sitting there filled with soldiers. And when we drove out, they were looking at us like, oh my God, how'd they get out? And come to find out they knew that, you know, that we were in there, that, uh, that we were probably going to get killed. And they were gonna, they were gonna go in, and put it, you know, and put it down, and use us as an example of why the black folks should not have their freedom. Jesus. Yeah, you know, see, see, you know, they're they're killing American blacks, you know, so you know, there's no reason why they should have their freedom. So, with they, you know, we were supposed to be assassinated while we were in there. The army was all set and ready to go in to, uh, to quell any kind of disturbance. So. Uh, that was uh, an experience. Yeah, that was quite an experience. Look, man, I do what I can do to help y'all. But the game is out there. And it's either play or get played. We're building something here, detective. We're building it from scratch. All the pieces matter. Pawns, man, in the game. They get capped quick. They be out the game early. Unless they some smart-ass pawns. I mean, you call some a war. And pretty soon, everybody gonna be running around acting like warriors. They gonna be running around on a damn crusade, storming corners, slapping on cuffs, racking up body counts. And soon, the neighborhood that you're supposed to be policing, that's just occupied territory. You follow drugs? You get drug addicts and drug dealers. But you start to follow the money, and you don't know where the fuck it's going to take you. The game is rigged. But you cannot lose if you do not play. Look, it takes money to make money, Strang. Otherwise, hell, every pauper would be a king. See, the thing is, you only got to fuck up once. Be a little slow, be a little late. Just once. And how you ain't gonna never be slow? Never be late? You can't plan for no shit like this, man. It's life. Ain't no shame in holding on to grief. As long as you make room for other things, too. A life, Jimmy. You know what that is? It's the shit that happens while you're waiting for moments that never come. Who's winning? 
No one wins once I just loses more slowly. A man must have a code. Oh, no doubt. You show loyalty, they learn loyalty. You show them it's about the work, it'll be about the work. You show them some other kind of game, then that's the game they'll play. The job will not save you, Jimmy. It won't make you whole, it won't fill your ass up. I don't know. A good case. Ends. They all end. The handcuffs go click and it's over. And the next morning, it's just you in your room with yourself. Getting clean's the easy part. Now comes life. What kind of role, if any, did the actors themselves play in this dialogue? They speak, and to what extent were you encouraging actors and their characters to be living in the present tense? Well, you know, it's part of directing. You know, whatever the requirements of the scene are. Uh, and, uh, you know, you go in, you know, like every day. You, you know, you have a scene coming up, you go into a location. The first thing in the morning, you bring in the actors, and you just kind of rehearse it, run it through. Because, um, you know, there was no real actual rehearsal time except in front of the camera when we're setting it up, you know, not like that's one of the things that television doesn't have. There's no rehearsal time before you get to the set. So usually any rehearsals you're doing is on set and, um, and, you know, you're working it out with the actors then and there, you know, um, how this feels, how that feels, right. um, uh, you know, um, playing out the moments and stuff. And if there was, a a visual plan, you know, then a lot of times I try and fit that into uh, my visual plan. You know, you always, the visual plan was always uh, leaving it open for uh, inspiration, you know, last minute inspiration or, you know, things change. So, uh, so, you know, it's, um, it's a journey. It's a, you know, you're, you're, you're uh, my mantra in life is that creation is a patient search. So, you know, when you're, working with the actors and you're searching what the scene is and you know where this is going to happen you know where you know is there going to be an explosion is there going to be a rise or not or is it just uh, uh connecting tissue you know uh that goes from you know to connect a couple of scenes is a finished episode relatively faithful to the original script does it change much no, it's usually pretty much uh, close to the script. Uh, if anything, sometimes because of time to get it within an hour, they would, uh, you know, maybe trim some dialogue sometimes. Um, one of the things that I loved was the fact that uh, they pretty much stuck to my cuts because after shooting, I would always have uh, a week to do my cut of the episode sitting with the editor doing the cut and um for the most part um you know um my cut stayed you know even even time to time you know it was like one time uh uh i had a dispute with nina over how i shot a scene one shot and uh she asked for another shot and i said but that doesn't I don't see that working. She says, yeah, but we might want it in editorial. And I said, all right. So I did the shot that she asked for, but I didn't put it in my cut. And then, and then later on, you know, 
they kept it the way I cut it. So, you know, so um, I think the only dispute I ever had in editorial was, uh, I think it was my, uh, my music choice for the season three finale. Okay. You know, there's, there's always a montage. Right. And, you know, uh, David always likes to put a, a blues tune in there. Um, and when I did my cut, uh, I put Jimi Hendrix, uh, Voodoo Child, which is a very bluesy piece. It's, you know, you know, from the, from the album, uh, Electric Ladyland, it's a very bluesy piece and it worked beautifully. I was like, Whoa, this is great. I loved it. But David did not consider Jimi Hendrix a blues player. I'm saying, David, he's a blues player. He just he's an electric blues player. Come on, man. He's a blues player playing with an electric guitar. He just he considered Hendrix a rock musician, not a blues player. So we had a big argument. <laughs> we had a big argument over that. You know, because uh, to me that's what Hendrix always has been. Yeah. You know, electric blues. So he put something else in there that, that didn't work as well, I don't think. So uh <laughs> but you know, that was um and even even and even to this day, whenever I see him, I say, Hendrix is a blues player, man. <laughs> <laughs> just, to, just to goad him a little bit. You know? That's great. That's great. Can you remember the shot you were just talking about, the differences you had in an opinion versus Nina's? It was, um, it was uh, Bodhi. It was when um, the episode, um, it was actually Bodhi's last episode. And what what it was was, his friend Kevin was in danger of being in trouble with Marlo. And so, you know, he told him, he said, hey, look, why don't you get, get, in, get out in front of that, man, you know, just to avoid getting yourself into a problem. You know, just go to Marlo and tell him. Well, he did. And Marlo killed him. And so it's a scene when Bodie's standing on his corner and, um, Slim Charles comes up in his car and tells him that. And, you know, just the devastation in Bodhi, uh, feeling that I had the camera on his back. It was a wide shot because I wanted him to just feel so alone in that shot. You know, after finding out that that his friend, this kid that, that he tried to help, actually did get got assassinated. And, you know, just the feeling that he that he confesses to um, to McNulty later on, you know, how he feels old, right. you know. Um, and uh, it was just um, after Slim Charles's car left and he's just standing there, you know, just standing there, just, and it was just his body language. And it was, for me, it was a shot, you know, it was a wide shot from behind with the wall on the right-hand side, and he's just kind of like standing there. And I just, and to me, that gave me how he was really feeling the desolation feeling alone feeling you know really you know really terrible about what happened and um and i don't even want me to do a close-up on his face and i just felt well that's not going to give it to us i think we need to see his whole body so i shot the close-up on his face just to move on you know, rather than argue <laughs> of course. all day. Right, right. And I didn't put it in my cut, but, you know, um, but I, I just saw the episode again uh, several weeks ago and with the shot in there, and I said, yeah, yeah, that that does work. 
you know, so we didn't, you know, so a lot of times, you know, you find an editorial, you do your cut and then producers come in and change it. Um, But uh, that didn't happen this time. It's Baltimore, gentlemen. The gods will not save you. In this town, we're as good as it gets. Natural police. We used to make shit in this country. Build shit. Now we just put our hand in the next guy's pocket. There ain't no Superman businessman like you. you know, I'm just a gangster, I suppose. I have seen what drugs have done to Baltimore. We have had enough. You gonna look out for me? You got my back, huh? You was never one of us. You never could be. Well, get on with it, motherfucker. All in the game, yo. <laughs> The Wire was actually one of the last shows to use the uh, the squarer format, you know, the one three three Academy ratio, the, the the old squarer format. And I wish, and I was trying to talk David into using a wider a wider screen, just because when you look down those rows of uh, of uh, row houses, it would just compose much better, you know, in a uh, in a wider, like a one eight five aspect ratio, a wider, a wider screen aspect ratio, and he just couldn't do that. So, but now I noticed that in, in when they bring the wire back, they've changed the aspect ratio <laughs> to a wider, <laughs> to a wider frame. You know, because uh, that's what everybody's televisions at home right. are. You know, it's the, it's the wider frame. It's not the the square frame like we used to have. So, um, so it's been changed, but I tried to get it done back then so we could, you know, compose in the camera better for it, you know, it just made it better, but, uh, it happened after the effect. So it's, that's the way it is now. Now, as a cinematographer, you're somebody who's always been expressive about the choices you make with cutters to tell stories. What lessons did you learn as a cinematographer yourself in terms of working with the cinematographers for The Wire and observing the light and how it moves and changes in Baltimore compared to other cities? Well, I could plan for those things um, with the, uh, you know, with the cinematographer. A lot of times, most of the time, I didn't have any uh pre-production time with the cinematographer you know i would we would start working together uh on the first day on set so a lot of times you know in planning the shots when i'm doing my storyboards and stuff like that and talking with the ad the assistant director um how to schedule stuff uh whenever it was necessary to take uh, the light or the time of day um into consideration i could do that um and, you know, being a cinematographer, that's what I always did, you know. Um, and, you know, on set, you know, um, I know how to stage a scene for a cinematographer. That was always, for me, the people always ask me if uh, the cinematographers I've worked with, if they were always nervous about working with me. And I said, no, I like to think that they actually had a good time because we could speak the same language, you know. So I knew how to talk to them and I could be you know, pretty exact with uh, with what I was looking for. How do you think The Wire shaped how you work and taught you lessons about dealing with actors, approaching material, structure, and new technology? Um, uh, you know, it was, you know, another experience, you know. Every, every show is a learning experience. Um, that's one of the things I love about this business is that... Um, about my end of the business is that it, you're constantly learning, 
you have to have that frame of mind that you're going to go in. You're going to be probably every day you're going to be uh, face a shit storm of, of problems that you have to solve so like, like right then and there. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just how you deal with them. Um, so, you know, just learned a lot about the city of Baltimore, um, and the, uh, you know, and, and really more confirmed of uh, the value of, of casting, you know, casting to me has always been probably the most nerve wracking part of putting a production together, but it's, uh, you know, once you get the right people, you know, because that was the great thing about The Wire, you know, the casting was, was perfect. Yeah. And uh, for the for the leads and then, you know, for some of the minor roles that I had a hand in in actually casting, you know, um, it takes time to find the right person. If it takes that time, it's worth it, you know, because uh, uh, casting is uh, having the right cast, I think, is 90 uh, percent of directing. What was it like working with Idris Elba? Oh, it was great. He was great. He was, uh, you know, all of them were really, really, really cool. What was funny about Idris was uh, was in between takes, you know, when he talk in his normal tone, he has a British accent. You know, <laughs> the first time I heard that, it kind of threw me for a loop. I said, whoa, whoa, you know, because, <laughs> you know, he does an American accent so so perfectly. Yeah. And so many people were, were really surprised to find out that he was actually from the UK. So, um but Idris was cool, you know, really good. I always knew his stuff. Um, I remember, um, I, I remember when I had to shoot his final shot in the show, which was his body being zipped up in a body bag after he had been assassinated, after Stringer had been assassinated, and uh, and I and I had this extra who played the medical medical technician he was having such a hard time zipping that zipping the body bag up <laughs> you know? and you know Idris is laying in the bag and the guy just couldn't get the zipper to work you know and uh and I think at one time you know he's doing it and Idris is playing dead and all of a sudden he just jumped what are you doing man and you know scared him you know? really just scared the guy you know? that's great and it of course is Dominic uh, West yeah yeah, Dominic was always cool. I mean, you know, everybody, had, everybody, you know, that's that's so so cool about working on that show. Everybody, every single day, for every single scene, bought their A game. You know, there wasn't, you know, any adjustments that I had to make were always minor. You know, because uh, they pretty much knew who their characters were already. So, for me, it was. It was fun because being a director is fun when you when you find yourself that you're the first audience for the show. You know, you're seeing it as it's happening. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so you know, it was uh, it was like really cool. It's Baltimore. No one lives forever. Hey, 
Major Crimes is being disbanded. Why ain't worth it, man? Nobody is. If I get to win, we get to win. I'm gonna go down in them corners, let them people know. My name is my name. Respectfully, morale is at rock bottom. Promises were made, promises will be kept. The bigger the lie, the more they believe. It always starts with something true. The longer this goes on, the worse the payback's gonna be. City. Do you think people respond to the same things in The Wire as they did when it was initially broadcast for the first time, or have the talking points people bring up to you, have they changed over the years? No, a lot of times people just, uh, it's its like a favorite show that a lot of people like to go back to. Um, I, I have, I've talked to a lot of people that say every year they have to watch, they have to binge watch The Wire. They'll take like a a week or two to binge watch all the episodes, you know, and, and they make it like a, a yearly thing, you know, um, you know, even though they've seen the show <laughs> since it first aired, you know, they still like to go back and look at it. And I can see why, you know, whenever if I'm flipping channels and I see it's on, I'll stop and watch just, uh, you know, just several days ago, they were showing it on HBO here and, and, um, and I had to watch, a scene that I think is probably one of the most heartbreaking scenes ever done in a way. That's the, the killing of Wallace from the first season. You know, that's such a pitiful scene. And um, <laughs> to see that Michael Jordan, you know, Michael B. Jordan then and see him now, you know, as a superstar. Yeah. But, you know, he started out as Wallace. And, you know, that was such a sad sad scene, you know, of, of him being assassinated. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, it's a show you like to go back to from time to time because, uh, you know, because even though it's not shocking anymore, I think for a lot of people seeing it for the first time, it's shocking. But then you go back because you really appreciate the quality of the show. You appreciate the writing. You appreciate the characters, um, you know, uh, for different reasons. I mean, you know, my daughter named her dog after Avon Barksdale. Incredible, her really. Dog, her dog's name. Her dog's name is Avon Barksdale. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, it's uh, it just got into the you know the public consciousness, you know, and here it comes on TV right now. There's Dominic West. There's Clark Peters. There's <laughs> yep, yeah, all the guys. Oh, there's Michael. Yeah.
wish I could show my appreciation for this podcast. I wish I could respond to it somehow or be notified in the future when Fly Fidelity updates because it's so great. But I don't think there's a way I can do any of those things. Uh-oh. You're wrong. <laughs> Subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud and never miss an episode. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. My people, are you with me where you at?